Well, we'll turn together. It's page, I think it says in your bulletin, 445, and the Bible's in your pews. 445, yeah. 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. Again, that's 445 in the pew Bibles there. I'll give you a minute to find it. Help your neighbor. And when it sounds like pages are done flipping, if you wouldn't mind saying another prayer with me before we, before we read in God's Word. While you're, while you're finding 1 Samuel 17, uh, let me say that I'm thankful for the ministry of this church, uh, thankful for Pastor Peter, Pastor Brandon, a friend of mine, uh, excited to hear that you're so far along in your search and be praying for your congregational meeting next week as you can be of one accord there. Thankful for the ministry of Camp Calvin, what that meant in my life. Thank you for uh, the friendship I have with Paula and many of you here. So I'm I'm very thankful for Brookfield Christian Reformed Church. I can also tell you that uh, we've also uh, been been praying for Glenn. Carl Block is uh, a member of our congregation, and we got notified about that. And so that's been out on our, our prayer line at, at Oosburg CRC. So we've been praying up in Oosburg also um, for, for God's rescue and, and his hand of intervention there. It sounds like most of you have found 1 Samuel 17, and so let's go before God in a prayer that the Spirit might guide and guard our hearts and our minds and our eyes as we read. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, We thank you for your work in illuminating this gracious word of the Lord that we have. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in drawing us to the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Triune God, we thank you for your many blessings. This morning as we read from 1 Samuel, may it touch us, may it affect us as only the Spirit can do. Anything that's of my flesh, may it fall away, may it even go unheard. But Lord, what's of you, may it be prophesied strongly so that it would take roots in hearts and minds and make a difference here and in your world. By your Spirit and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Samuel 17. We'll read just verses 1 through 40. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephestamim between Sukkah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. It's like 150 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, he will become, we will become your subjects. 
But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let, each, let, let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the, Philistines came, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. And, I, and he will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine? And removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited and wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David. Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear come and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in a pouch in his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I encourage you to finish that story at home today, especially uh, if you've got kids. Read that story together. You can continue uh, this work of discipleship at home too. Pastor Drew from our congregation has called the story of David and Goliath the most well-known story in Scripture. He might be right. At first, I, I kind of pushed back. I think maybe the cross might be the most well-known story in Scripture. But he said, you know, every time when March Madness comes around, they talk all about the David versus the Goliath, right? Every upset is a David versus Goliath. And, and maybe more people who aren't even familiar with the Bible have heard the term David and Goliath. It's often preached wrong. If you've seen the film American Gospel, you know what I mean. And I'm quite confident that with Pastor Peter and Pastor Brandon here, it's certainly been preached correctly in Brookfield Christian Reformed Church. But too often we make ourselves the hero of the Bible story. We think David represents us. If we just have enough faith, we can slay giants, move mountains, raise the dead. But David represents, in a way, Christ for us in this story. It was Christ who came from Bethlehem, meek and mild, to destroy the giants in our lives that left us paralyzed in fear, even dead. That giant is sin and death, and because Christ conquers the giant, sin and death, we conquer by proxy. That is, he lives and so do we. That's the main point of the story of David and Goliath that a rescuer must come and win the battle on our behalf. I don't want that part to be lost today. Christ is our rescuer. But, as is true of all Scripture, there's incredible depth in this story. There's other things we can glean when we take a closer look, remembering, of course, that the main point is that Christ, our rescuer, comes and slays the giant on our behalf. Keep that at the forefront of your mind, please. If David teaches us something about Christ, what do we learn about ourselves? If we're not David, who are we? True to form, we simply look for the most useless, inactive, aloof character in the story, and there we are. We are sheep after all. Here it is, verse 24. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. I think I found us. In 1 Samuel 17, we find the Israelites in two very different states. They have a certain disposition or a certain character pre-rescue and a new, very different disposition post-rescue. Let's compare the Israelites' pre-rescue and post-rescue. Pre-rescue, the Israelites have an incredible amount of trust in themselves. Three examples. One, we find at the outset two armies, each camped on a hill with a valley between them. I'm certainly no military tactician, 
but I've seen Star Wars once. Spoiler. Obi-Wan, in his battle with Anakin, so famously exclaims, It's over, Anakin. I have the higher ground. See, having high ground in a battle is a, is a real advantage. Right? You're striking down at your opponent, and your opponent's striking up, not even able to reach the head or the neck area. Right? You're at a disadvantage attacking from the lower ground. And so you have two armies camped on a hill with a valley in between. Whichever army chooses to attack first loses their advantageous position. To attack first means to make yourself vulnerable. To attack first means you have to go down the hill into the valley and you're fighting uphill. It is quite literally an uphill battle. Whoever attacks first charges down into the valley and attacks uphill. Pre-rescue, they believe their position is strong. So one thing, pre-rescue, they believe their position is strong. Second, There is a terribly selfish motivation that has corrupted this army to a man. This becomes blatantly obvious during this. Did you you find that interaction between David and his brother strange? Every time I read that, it's like, like, that's just a really strange conversation to have with all this else going around. Why would that be included here? Right? David's wicked because he wants to come watch the battle? Of course not. And then David says, now nah, what have I done? Right? It's, this, it's this weird back and forth that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the stuff. But what does it tell us? The people, cowering in fear, mind you, are chattering about what? Verse 25. What are they talking about? Are they talking about what God has done for their forefathers? His faithfulness, his might? Are they talking about God's promises? Are they considering the great things God has done? Nope. They're whispering to each other about the money and sex that awaits the man who wins the battle. David starts asking around, in my opinion, like, what are you saying? This guy's defying God. We're going to take him out, right? What, what, are, we, what are we talking about the, the money and the sex for? He's defying God. That's the main point here. And it's Eliab's conclusion that David could only be interested in a reward. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Eliab can't conceive that David would be here for any other reason, that he would be interested in this battle for any other purpose than some earthly reward. Pre-rescue, we've got a bunch of self-serving cowards. Two things so far. Pre-rescue. They believe their position is strong. And we've got a bunch of self-serving cowards. Third thing. When David announces that the Lord will deliver them, King Saul responds by fitting David head to toe with the best man-made shield money can buy. Of course, not only is the armor of no use, it actively paralyzes the people even further pre-rescue, even the best they can muster, plunges them further into destruction. So here's the position of the Israelites pre-rescue. They believe their position strong, but it's left them paralyzed. They won't move. They won't advance. They're 
cowardly and selfish. They can consider only the material gain. They can only weigh the material risk. And finally, the best they can muster, the best they can produce with their own hands, this armor, the best they can do on their own makes them worse. So I present to you the Israelites, a group of self-serving cowards trying to dig their way out of a hole they once thought to be a strong position. God had promised their forefather Abram to be his shield and reward, Genesis 15.1. These guys thought, yeah, but what if we just did it ourselves? I found us, didn't I? How many of us know what it's like to be paralyzed by our fear? To try our best, to try so hard, only to find ourselves in more despair than when we started. To have wants and desires that never satisfy. The call of Christ is to be raised from that dead state and have our desires and thoughts renewed in obedience with the Lord's command. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And Paul repeats it here, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. David descends from this lofty position on a hill. This meek shepherd from Bethlehem leaves his lofty position and goes into battle. And he represents the fate of the nation. If David wins the battle, the nation's set free. If David loses the battle, the nation remains captive. We know this to be true of our Lord Jesus Christ who left his lofty position to be a shepherd from Bethlehem, meek and mild, who went to the grave on our behalf for while we were still sinners, he died for us. And because he won, we're set free. And look at the change in the Israelites' character post-rescue. We've talked so far about their character pre-rescue. They're afraid. They're selfish. They're stuck in, in, in this place that they once thought to be strong but is so weak. They, they can't muster any strength in and of themselves. And David defeats this giant and they storm. They go storming into the valley and they chase the Philistines. My friends, if we are the Israelites here, pre-rescue, pre-rescue, we offer nothing, nothing from our flesh that's useful, nothing. 
The world tells you that, that you, you've got something to offer, that you're special, that you're unique, and yes, you're created in the image of God and you are special and unique, but you offer nothing to God that's useful. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough for God to say, you know what, this one's righteous enough. It doesn't work that way. Because this armor we try to craft, this righteousness we try to wear ourselves, it just weighs us down. It just weighs us down like it did David. We can try walking in it. It's not going to work. But because Christ went to battle for us, what does our disposition look? What does our character look post-rescue? called this message, uh, if you look at sermon titles, things like that, the fit and ready church. What does it look like? What would it look like if Brookfield Christian Reformed Church was fit and ready? This is a healthy church. I'm going to work kind of backwards from the one, two, three we did before. We landed on, on David trying on the armor, right? So what, what does it look to be fit and ready? What, is, what does God's armor look like? If, if man's armor is useless, what does God's armor look like? Uh, of course, we have this in Ephesians 5, the armor of God. The things that God says are valuable to us, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. Notice that this list is made up entirely of things that God gifts to us. The armor of God is not praying enough. The armor of God is not good deeds. The armor of God is not keeping the law. The armor of God is truth. He gives us the spirit of truth. It's righteousness. He gives us Christ's righteousness. It's peace. He gives us the gospel of peace, the spirit of peace, faith. He confers faith to us. Salvation. We know salvation is a free gift of God. And finally, the Word of God He's given us so graciously. Now, to a man, we need this armor, but, but what about at the level of the church? What about at the level of a church? Each one of us needs truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. But what does it look like to do it as a church, as a group? Belgic Confession, Article 28, tells us, no one ought to withdraw from the church content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition. You're not too smart to stop going to church, and you're not too bad to stop showing up. Regardless of your status or condition, you ought not to stop meeting together. This feels like a pertinent word today, right? The events of the last year have left a lot of us unwilling to unite with the body. You ought not to withdraw from the church, but all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of the church in the same body. We're stronger when we're together because we're all gifted differently. When we serve as a body, not as individuals, we become a stronger army. We, we make up the body of Christ, hands and feet and eyes and nose. Feet, did I say? 
That's not the plural of foot. So God's armor. Are we putting on God's armor to be fit and ready? We said point, point two before. We're working backwards, remember. Point two before was they were cowardly and selfish. Their desires were entirely material. They wanted the money and the sex that, that came with winning the battle. They didn't care that, that the nation of Israel was, was being rebuked, that God was being defied. They didn't care about that stuff. What about us? We're told about the new covenant that would come. Jeremiah prophesies about it. And in Hebrews 8.10, we're told that this covenant, in this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write my laws down on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of these to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is a new heart. We're told that upon believing, what the Spirit does for us is He replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And on our own, we're dead. Our hearts are stone. It doesn't beat. It doesn't accomplish anything. But the Spirit replaces our heart with a heart of flesh that can beat. It can beat with the Lord, with His law in our hearts and in our minds, and our desires are changed. No longer to be selfish, but to put those selfish things aside and take on the things of God, His law, His deeds, His work in the world. We're told in, in the book of 1 Corinthians that we can possess the mind of Christ, not in some Gnostic way that we have all his knowledge, but that we can see the world. We can have the same worldview that Jesus had. We can see the world the way Jesus wants us to see the world because the Spirit changes our desires. Finally, working backwards, remember the first point was they were paralyzed up on this hill. They thought it was a strong position. They were unwilling to advance People, when we're changed by the Spirit of God, Matthew 28, 19 tells us, therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations. To be a fit and ready church means to prepare our hearts and minds individually and corporately in the body of Christ, to have our desires changed, to be sent out. I'm I'm part of uh, Classus work. Classus is a group of Christian Reformed churches in Wisconsin that, that do ministry together. Okay? I'm, par I'm part of a Classus committee called the, the Classus Renewal Committee. It's kind of like the Classus, classus Committee. I, I feel like we just talk about how to do Classus at the Classus Renewal Committee. It's a lot of, just to say Classus a lot more. Is that helping anybody? I don't know. Well, we've been talking about uh, ways, ways to do ministry together better, okay? And so we had interviews with all the pastors and, and some elders and deacons from each church. And one thing we heard when we asked the question, what would it look like if, if Classus Wisconsin was functioning properly? One thing we heard almost universally from all the churches, CRC churches in the state of Wisconsin, was that the churches would be multiplying, that if Classus Wisconsin was functioning properly, 
there would be multiplication. There'd be new churches. There'd be church plants. Churches would be growing. We'd have to split because we wouldn't have room for people. We'd be multiplying. That's a great goal. I have, I have met very, very few pastors who aren't interested in planting a church, right? We want to see the kingdom of God advanced. And that means making new disciples, and that means going out. We want to do that kind of stuff. So we were talking about classes stuff at a classes renewal committee one time, and, and one of the pastors in the room said, I don't think we can focus on, on church plants yet. And we kind of all said, what? Of course we want to focus on church plants. We want to multiply. That's what everyone said. And he said, no, I've been here for four or five years now, and more churches have closed than have been planted. More churches have closed than have been planted. If Classis Wisconsin wants to go, if we want to heed the Great Commission, if we want to multiply, we need healthy churches. And if we're going to have healthy churches, we need to have healthy people in the churches. So what's your takeaway today? The armor of God looks different than the armor of men. And the kingdom of God needs you as an individual to put on the armor of God. Truth, faith, peace, salvation. To be in the word of God. The kingdom of God needs you to have that stuff. Because if you guys have that stuff, if you have strong faith, if you have people here who are truly saved, if you have people here who know their Bible, who know the Word of God, if you have people of peace and unity here, then this becomes a healthy church. I'm not saying it's not. I actually think Brookfield's here sees a very healthy church. It's a call to remain healthy. It's a call to our classes to be healthy. So when we have healthy churches... When Brookfield CRC and Oostburg CRC and Christ Community and, and Delavan and the Wapan churches, when we're all healthy, we can multiply. And the kingdom of God can go the way we want it to. Because as long as we're unhealthy, we're paralyzed in our position. We're not able to go. We're not able to go unless we have healthy churches. So, be renewed. Set your minds on things above. Renew your mind, right? That's, that's a call of Scripture. Renew your hearts. Submit to the work of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit on your heart. Be renewed so that our churches can be renewed, so that our classes can be renewed, so that the state can be renewed so that our denomination that stretches across the world can be renewed. I prayed today for revival in the city of Milwaukee. Revival happens when people turn to the Lord. They confess their sins. They believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. And they move with the Holy Spirit in the work of renewal, individually, corporately, globally. Let's all commit to doing our part in the work of renewing the world. Would you pray with me?
Lord, you have given us the confidence to go because we know the giant has already been slain. Christ has already won the victory. Inspire us, inspire us in light of that truth to be people of renewal, to have our hearts changed through the work of the Holy Spirit. And God, as healthy people make healthy churches, inspired by that Spirit, may we go. May we go and take the gospel to the nations. God, this is your work. And we rely on you for all of it. And in the work of sanctification and in being renewed, you've asked us to play a part. So Lord, we, we commit to doing that diligently, to being people of peace, to being people of of righteousness, to being people who know the word of God. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.